0: The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows such as Starman, Probe, and The Popcorn Kid. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the internet of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the Forgotten TV studio 30 years later. To obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling. Remember to visit Forgotten.tv for all content, links, and show notes, including buttons to support the podcast by donation or by using the Amazon wish list, such as Richard Kaye did by supplying the DVD for this episode. Thank you, Richard. If you listened to the last podcast, you learned how NBC brought Man from Atlantis to series television in fall of 1977, with somewhat disappointing results compared to the series of TV movies they had done. Meanwhile, CBS had their own plans to bring a science fiction property to the air, adapting a successful feature film, much as they had done three years earlier with Planet of the Apes. This time, CBS had their eye on the 1976 MGM film, Logan's Run.
1: MGM puts the future in the palm of your hand. This is the 23rd century, where sophisticated technology has created an automated world of wonders. A world beyond imagination until now. It is filled with beauty and the vitality of youth. Pleasure is the way of life. But in the 23rd century, life lasts 30 years. Not one day less, not one day more. When the crystal in the palm of your hand flashes its final message, your time is up. But there are a few rebels who run in search of sanctuary. Logan, trained to enforce the law, dares to become a runner himself. He and the girl who loves him become the hunted when they set off on Logan's Run, a fantastic adventure through the 23rd century.
0: To understand how this was adapted into a series, let's go back to the 1960s to see where the concept of Logan's Run originated. Logan's Run was originally a novel by William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson. Published in 1967, the novel depicts a dystopic ageist future society in which both population and the consumption of resources of the entire world are maintained in equilibrium by a computer called the Thinker, implanting a life clock in the palm of citizens tracking their lifespan, and requiring the death of everyone reaching the age of 21. The story follows the actions of Logan, a sandman charged with enforcing the rules, as he tracks down and kills citizens who run from society's lethal demand, only to end up running himself. Many of the themes explored are extensions of ideas presented in Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel, Brave New World. This is a simplified timeline of how Logan's Run made it from idea to movie to series. The Logan's Run story came about after Twilight Zone writer Charles Beaumont encouraged William F. Nolan to quit his job at the unemployment office to the point of financing him with a monthly stipend so he could transition to a professional writer. Nolan then met George Clayton Johnson, when Johnson showed up out of the blue to Beaumont's writing group. While working on a concept for Beaumont's UCLA class, Nolan started toying with the concept of turning the life begins at 40 cliché on its head, with the idea of a future society where the inhabitants weren't allowed to live past a certain age. Nolan expressed this idea to Johnson over dinner, who thought the concept would make a great screenplay. The pair decided to write it as a novel first, so the story could generate revenue even before they attempted to sell it as a screenplay. They rented a Malibu motel room, and for three weeks they hammered out the initial draft of the novel. After polishing, the team had strong feelings the novel would indeed be in demand for a movie, and agreed they would sell the movie rights for no less than $100,000 the equivalent of about $800,000 today. After shopping it to several studios, MGM bought the rights and initially involved producer George Powell and screenwriter Richard Maybaum to develop the film. A change in MGM studio executives led to the film being shelved for a time, as well as later involving producer Irwin Allen. In 1973, new MGM president Frank Roosevelt brought on board producer Saul David with the intent to develop the film into a prestige motion picture for the studio on a modest $3 million budget, although this later inflated to $7 million. David was very familiar with the project, having been executive story editor at MGM during the years George Powell and Irwin Allen were attached to the project. Saul David brought in David Zelig Goodman to adapt the novel into a screenplay, which ended up making a number of changes to the story, as well as introducing additional concepts, such as the Egyptian Ankh iconography, limiting the story to a domed city, and changing the maximum allowed age from 21 to 30. In June 1976, Logan's Run was widely released, starring Michael York, Ginny Augutter, Richard Jordan, and Peter Ustinov, and grossed $25 million. Meanwhile, Nolan was writing a sequel novel called Logan's World. With the film now making Logan's Run a financially successful property, MGM originally expressed interest in adapting Logan's World as a film. But MGM and producer Saul David opted to focus on developing a TV series instead after CBS paid $9 million for the television rights to Logan's run. Nolan, along with Saul David, wrote a script for a pilot episode, and Nolan was offered the position of story editor, which he ended up declining due to disagreeing over the direction MGM wanted to take the series. Nolan considered the series doomed and walked away from the project. Nolan told Cinescape magazine why. Their idea was to run Logan around in a car every week and encounter new societies underground. After solving their problems, he would return to the surface, get in his car, and drive away. I felt that wasn't the way to handle the concept. Gregory Harrison was cast as Logan 5, Heather Menzies was Jessica 6, Donald Moffat was Rem, and Randy Powell was Francis 7. A pilot was shot and presented to CBS, who then asked for changes, including the introduction of a cabal of city elders who secretly ruled over the domed city. Saul David was let go from the project, and producers Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts were brought on board, as well as story editor D.C. Fontana and producer Leonard Katzman, who were fresh off the canceled production of The Fantastic Journey. Leonard Katzman made the changes to the pilot script. The pilot went through reshoots and re-editing. Now pleased, CBS ordered 13 episodes, and Logan's Run went into production as a series. Then, on Friday, September 16, 1977, Logan's Run aired on CBS. Segment 1
2: 200 years have passed since the nuclear war raged to an end and the computers took over what was left of the world, sealed it off from the outside, and made it perfect. Now in the domed city in this year of 2319, living is unending joy. Every wish is granted, every sensual dream is realized, and all the world is young. For in this perfect society, no one is allowed to live past 30. On your 30th birthday, you must enter the great sleep in the ceremony of the carousel, to be renewed, to be born again in another body, and so begin another 30 years of blissful existence. But there are those in the domed city who have begun to ask questions, to doubt. They talk in whispers about a refuge in the vast unknown that lies outside, a place they call Sanctuary
1: Identify
0: As the crowd enjoys the ritual of Carousel A pair of Sandmen, Logan 5 and Francis 7, are in the audience And Logan is a little too free with his thoughts And expresses questions to Francis that usually aren't asked
3: Why do some people try to escape Carousel? Why do they become runners? They're sick Why else should anyone try to escape sleep? Birth for a death, one for one, it's the natural way. Francis, have you ever seen anyone renewed? Born into another body? We've been over this before. We're friends, I thought I could talk to you. We don't question the order of things, we're Sandmen. Our job is to hunt down runners and terminate.
0: Meanwhile, a runner, a citizen nearing the age of 30, who tries to flee the domed city instead of report to Carousel, meets his contact, Jessica Six.
1: I'm Jessica Six. Come with me. Runner! Logan, don't shoot! You know my name? We've been
2: watching you.
1: Not like the rest of the Sandman. You've been asking questions. Logan, carousel is death. No one is renewed.
3: When you're 30, you'll die too.
1: Unless you run for sanctuary.
3: You caught it. Terminated, Logan. Francis, wait, listen. And the girl. She must have been helping. They say that people can live past 30 outside in sanctuary. They're lying to you. But what if there is sanctuary, and carousel is a fraud? Logan, you've got a job to do. You're a sandman. Terminate! We're both runners now.
0: Following a secret path that leads to the outside, Logan and Jessica exit the city to an area of scrub desert. Meanwhile, Francis is transported to a secret council of elders that secretly runs the city.
1: Come forward,
3: Francis Seven. You're looking at old age. How can anyone be old? Everyone goes to Carousel at Thirty. Not everyone. Not the elders who control the City of Domes. You see, we're a contained society. The City of Domes can only support a finite number of people. Therefore, an appropriate age had to be determined for the end of life to accommodate the newly born. There's no renewal? We're not born again? We must have Logan and the girl return to us. To testify at Carousel. They'll renounce the runners. They'll be living proof that there is no sanctuary. That our way of life is the only way. Find Logan 5 and the girl. Show that you deserve to join us.
0: Logan and Jessica find a water source and get caught in a thunderstorm. They seek shelter in the ruins of the United States Capitol building and burn bits of green paper to keep warm. After a night's sleep, the two discover an old vehicle, a solar-powered hovercraft in a warehouse. As Logan figures out how to operate it, Francis and his sandmen enter the Capitol ruins. Logan blows a hole in the wall to drive through, and the Sandman find them.
3: It's all over, Logan. You've had your time outside. Outside, Francis. And we're alive. It wasn't true about the air. What about renewal? We're taking you back to the city. You and the girl.
0: Segment 2, Now Driving Over the Countryside. Logan and Jessica drive to where they saw a fallout shelter indicated on a civil defense map in the capital. They are spotted and shot at by men on horseback with laser rifles and take refuge in the shelter, which is occupied by a group of people descended from nuclear war survivors. And Logan and Jessica see their first old man.
1: Years ago, when we lived above, before the riders drove us underground, There were others who came looking for sanctuary. What happened to them? Did they find it? I don't know. They just went on their way. Does it hurt to have your face with cracks like that? (laughs) (laughs) Hurt? (laughs) Of course not. That's just part of being old. Are you many years past 30? Twice 30 and then some. But I can still handle myself with the best. (laughs) When will your last day be? When you terminate. Well, there's no way of knowing. You might die anytime. Or might live forever. That's what I'm planning on doing anyway.
0: They learn the band of survivors live by a creed of nonviolence and therefore have no weapons to defend themselves against the riders who have imprisoned others of their group. Jessica is fascinated by a daughter and her mother and the naturally occurring childbirth that takes place outside the controlled city environment and befriends the little girl. The next day, the girl ventures outside and Jessica goes looking for her. They are both captured by the riders and taken to a work camp. Logan seeks the aid of others to rescue them, but they are complacent, having traded freedom for the relative safety of the shelter. And will not venture outside to help. Alone, Logan with his flare gun strategically attacks the camp and leads a revolt against the riders, finally joined by men from the shelter that have come to help. Segment three Driving to the mountain range, the solar craft is electronically jammed. They are greeted by Draco and Siri wearing white robes.
3: I'm Draco. And you are Logan. And this is Jessica.
1: We're from the City of Domes.
3: City of Domes? The name is unknown to me. You mean no other runners ever came here before? Runners?
1: People who escaped from our city. No, you are the first. I am Siri. We shall be happy to serve you.
0: Come. Entering the mountain city, Jessica quickly notes there are no children. The pair are treated to a spa and served food and drink but they quickly realize something is off
3: about this place. Where are you taking us? To the masters. They've been waiting for this moment.
1: Special food has been prepared in your honor.
3: That's never good.
0: Logan and Jessica are introduced to the masters, which are simply black-robed skeletons sitting in chairs. They realize everyone they have met
3: are robots. You've been very kind, but we're leaving. Leaving our celebration, leaving your city.
1: We appreciate everything you've done. But you are guests, and guests do not leave the mountain city. You must allow us to serve you. Siri, see to our guests. We cannot allow you to leave. You must stay and be served. Cannot allow... Cannot allow, cannot allow, cannot allow.
0: Escaping their prison cell of luxury via a hidden shaft, the pair enter a repair shop and meet the maintenance man.
3: Who are you? My name is Reb. I'm the one who brings them up to snuff when they break down, which they do with monotonous regularity the way they build servants these days. But then, nothing's ever perfect, is it? Including my situation.
1: Then you're not happy here.
0: Tired of his life of endlessly repairing robots, Rim agrees to leave the city with them. Meanwhile, Francis and the Sandman have again caught up to them.
3: Your run's over, Logan. (laughs) Why, Logan? Why did you run? Was it because of her? I ran because I wanted to live. You betrayed everything we were brought up to believe in. It was all lies. Francis, we don't owe the Dome City anything. It's a bank of programmed computers telling us when to live and when to die without choice. No. It's the girl. She changed you into what you are. A traitor. Weapons are not permitted in the city. You'll be safe inside. No, no. Go on!
0: The robots overcome the Sandman and take them away to serve them. It is revealed Rim is an android, but he may be able to learn something from his new human companions.
3: Why didn't you leave when you had the chance?
1: We wouldn't go without you.
3: You did help us. You were willing to risk your safety to stay with me because I helped you.
1: Yes, of course
3: it doesn't compute (laughs) (laughs) well where are we off to we're looking for a place called sanctuary sanctuary Mm
1: -hmm. it's a place where humans can live out their lives in freedom and in peace they can raise their children with love and teach them the values of dignity and loyalty.
3: Freedom, love, loyalty, those are human concepts, I suppose.
1: Oh, yes, of course.
3: Worthwhile. Mm, very. Hmm. Fascinating. But drive on.
0: and Logan, Jessica, and Rim drive away to their next adventure. This pilot was written by William F. Nolan, Saul David, and Leonard Katzman. Directed by Robert Day, who had cranked out episodes of The Avengers, The FBI, The Sixth Sense, and directed the 1965 Ursula Andress classic, She, guest-starring Morgan Woodward as the elder Morgan, We'll see him a couple more times in the series. Keen Curtis was robot Draco. A regular TV actor, he was later Sam Malone's arch-enemy John Allen Hill, who owned Melville's, the upstairs restaurant, on Cheers. Lena Raymond was Siri. She later appeared on Manimal and Probe. E.J. Andre stood in for Peter Ustinov's Old Man character. Name a TV western and he was on it. He later played James and Cassandra's Uncle Jed on Little House on the Prairie. And a young Michael Bean was a Sandman in what may have been his first acting role, having also appeared in the pilot of James at 15 that same month in 1977. Some behind-the-scenes tidbits on this pilot. To drum up interest in the series, CBS premiered the Logan's Run film on Tuesday night, September sixth, 1977, at 8.30 p.m., 7.30 Central Mountain. The TV pilot then aired Friday, September 16th, splitting the primetime evening after the 90-minute Season 2 premiere of Wonder Woman, which brought that series into the modern-day 70s. It was on against A New Rockford Files and Quincy on NBC and ABC running the TV movie Curse of the Black Widow, covered in Episode 25 of this podcast. As far as future fashions, Logan is dressed in a smart, basic black Sandman uniform with light gray collar and stripe across the chest, in a very slightly modified uniform compared to the film. Jessica is wearing a peach-colored, silky-looking dress with metallic belt and light peach pennyhose or tights. This becomes important later on in Behind the Scenes. Taking clear inspiration from the prior season's The Fantastic Journey, among RIM's implements are a tuning fork device capable of a variety of tasks. You may recall the alien Varian had a similar tuning fork. Of course, story editor D.C. Fontana and producer Leonard Katzman had just finished work on The Fantastic Journey when they came aboard for Logan's run. The show made some changes to the Sandman handheld device props as seen in the film. The handheld mobile device carried is called the Follower by fans, but it is never called this in the show. In-universe, they were a two-way radio, received text messages much like a mid-80s pager, had a flashlight, and somehow was a tracking device to find runners, possibly among other functions not depicted. The ones in the show were decidedly less fancy and more boxy-looking than the ones on the film. A surviving follower prop from the TV show was recently auctioned for $2,125. Likewise, the guns used were slightly different from the ones in the film. Called flame guns by fans, in the film they only appear to have one setting, which is capable of causing damage to property or killing a person with a direct hit. The flame gun props for both the film and TV series had a realistic appearance and were made of brass, bondo, and bandsawed aluminum plates all painted with a firearm black finish. They had a distinct practical special effect when fired that actually emitted greenish flames out the sides of the flash suppressor at the end of the barrel while an explosive charge would be triggered where the supposed energy bolt was supposed to hit, whether this be on a person, on the ground, or on an object. The flames were accomplished by mixing calcium carbide with water to produce acetylene gas, which was shot across a battery-powered glow plug at the end of the barrel. This was very effective, since this all happened live on film, complete with the distinct sound effect heard. Modified for the series is the added ability of the flame guns having a stun setting, with the rear end cap now having a dial added to accomplish different settings. More on this in Episode 7, when Logan explains its operation. The same actress that provided the city computer voice in the film was also used in the show. Virginia Ann Ford was the uncredited computer voice. More about that later in Behind the Scenes. Running just under 1 hour 14 minutes, the pilot recycled footage from the movie, which greatly reduced production costs and presented a slightly altered version of events and sort of remakes the story. Some of the main differences between the film and the TV pilot are, The TV version gives a short, simple motivation for Logan to run, his spur-of-the-moment attack on Francis to save Jessica. In the film, the computer had altered his life clock to flash red and insinuated it would not be reversed upon completion of his mission. In a twist of the film's story, Francis is given the assignment of pursuing both Logan and Jessica. In return, he would be allowed to live past 30 and join the Council of Elders, a group not mentioned or referred to in the film. When the renewal candidates float up to meet their fate, We get even better effects than the film, which simply had them explode. Now they look like they vaporize in a glowy disintegration. This was done to make the renewal less violent to appease broadcast standards and practices. The crystal life clocks from the novel and film are not used in the series. Producer Ben Roberts said, We quite deliberately eliminated the crystals. It would be a terrible interference in a TV series you'd have to constantly be explaining it. The pilot episode seemed like two shortened stories mashed together, and there's a reason for that. The original pilot, written by William F. Nolan and shot in the spring of 1977, was for a one-hour time slot, likely around 49 minutes long. The second segment, with the shelter refugees versus the riders, as well as the whole subplot introducing the Council of Elders, was added by writer Leonard Katzman when he, Goff, and Roberts were brought on board and the pilot was expanded to fit in a 90-minute time slot. The second segment is woefully underdeveloped and happens ridiculously fast, told in only 20 minutes. It is never explained where the uniformed riders come from, or for what purpose they were imprisoning the survivors, which are shown performing menial labor. They are clearly part of a greater military force, and it is quite likely more of them will show up after Logan and Jessica go their way, but this is not dealt with. How the city computer knows when a citizen begins to run is not clear. In the film, it logically follows that a person's life clock crystal in their palm is tracked, and someone that should be in carousel could easily be geolocated as depicted in the series citizens have no life clocks embedded in their palms and no other tracking devices are referred to yet still in some generic way the follower is able to track people also running is always depicted as a last minute thing do people never decide to run ahead of their last day this would make a lot more sense and be far less obvious to the Sandman and the city computer. I guess the pleasures of the city were so good, people wanted to live it up for as long as they could. Forgotten TV will return after these messages. It's Saturday night,
1: party night, and the only person here without a date is you. But imagine this. You touch a switch, turn a dial, and the perfect lover steps into your arms. Hi, I'm Jessica.
2: Welcome to the 23rd century, the perfect world of total pleasure. MGM presents the Saul David production of Logan's Run.
1: Run, Logan. Just imagine the fulfillment of every fantasy. Run, Logan. The satisfaction of every vanity. Run, Logan! The absolute attainment of every wish.
2: Run! There's just one catch. Run, Logan! logan's run rated pg parental guidance suggested released by united artists logan's run it's the perfect world of
1: total pleasure there's just one catch
0: hi this is christopher daniel barnes and you're listening to forgotten tv episode two the collectors aired the following friday night at 9 p.m 8 central after a new wonder woman we now have a standard episode teaser, followed by a new theme for the series composed by Lawrence Rosenthal.
3: Rem! I was getting worried about you. Graham, we found it! We found what? Sanctuary! Are you nothing but a machine? Nothing but a machine indeed. That piece of tin and wire is a machine!
1: We were just friends!
3: How did you find Sanctuary? Is that where you think you are? You're back in the city of domes. Run out!
0: While traveling, the solar craft breaks down in a desert area. While Rem serves as auto mechanic, Logan and Jessica explore and, over the next ridge, find sanctuary. Wow, that was easy! But it turns out it was too good to be true, as it is all an illusion provided by aliens collecting a menagerie of species from various worlds. And Logan, Jessica, and even Rem are to be added to the collection. This episode was written by James Schmirrer and directed by Alexander Singer. This is the only Logan's Run credit for either person. Singer had a long directing career for nearly 40 years, which included 22 episodes of various Star Trek series. Guest starring Lyndon Childs, who was already starring on James at 15 on NBC, Leslie Parrish and Angela Cartwright also appeared. Cartwright is probably best known as Penny Robinson from Lost in Space. Some episode notes. The plot elements lifted some ideas from the Star Trek episodes Shore Leave as well as The Cage. Sort of a weak follow-up to the pilot, in my opinion. This episode omits Francis and the other Sandmen, who evidently were trying to catch up with the trio, Surprisingly, eight of the 14 episodes would leave out Francis and just focus on the trio of travelers. Rim is now in his green jumpsuit that he will wear for the rest of the series. And information I read online said the actors appearing as the various aliens in their cells were evidently wearing a variety of Don Post masks. The exterior set location for this episode's Sanctuary, I recognized from Episode 3 of The Fantastic Journey Beyond the Mountain. This was the Budweiser Pavilion in Busch Gardens in Van Nuys, California. It closed down in 1979. The following Friday, Episode 3, Capture, aired, again following a new episode of Wonder Woman.
1: Why are you doing this? My husband's a hunter. He stalked and killed every kind of animal. It became too easy for him. Now, then, then, then. i heard you were the most dangerous man alive. You're going to prove it to me. You'll be my ultimate challenge. What
3: if we won't play your game?
1: The prize is your life. We were captured by a man named Borden. And Rem, he hunts human beings. Right now, he's, he's tracking Logan and Francis. So when he finds them, he's going to kill them.
0: While the trio are relaxing at a lake, Francis and a sandman, now traveling in ground cars, have caught up with them. Francis takes Logan and Jessica and leaves Rim to be disposed of by the other sandman. While Rim quickly outsmarts his would-be executioner, Francis, Logan, and Jessica run astray of James and Irene, a husband-and-wife team of hunters that want to make them their next prey. When James accidentally kills his own wife, he is enraged and even more determined to hunt down Logan and Francis. This episode was written by D.C. Fontana and directed by Irving J. Moore. Fontana, of course, was the story editor of the series, and we'll talk more about her later. Irving J. Moore had directed numerous episodes of The Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, Korg 70,000 B.C., Bigfoot and Wild Boy, and Eight is Enough. Horst Buschholz was James, A well-known German actor, he was in 1960's The Magnificent Seven. Mary Warrenoff was Irene. She has been in over 100 films and TV shows and is recognizable from the films Eating Raoul, Night of the Comet, and Motorama, three interesting offbeat films. She has also appeared on Buck Rogers, Heart to Heart, Knight Rider, Monsters, Highlander, and many other shows. During their off episode, Francis and the Sandmen evidently returned to the City of Domes and were given ground cars, a variation on the maze cars from the feature film, although this is never explained or referred to. This was indeed based on the 1924 short story The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell which has inspired countless films and TV episodes of Airwolf, The A-Team, Bonanza, The Incredible Hulk, Matt Houston, Star Trek, and others. While it's an okay premise for an episode, no explanation was provided for where James and Irene came from. Were they from a group of survivors of the nuclear war? They lived in a well-built house and seemed well-off in terms of food, energy, and supplies— this is something you'll notice again and again in this series. The ending of this was totally contrived and unbelievable, with Francis just letting them all go at the end, which seemed out of character for him. But since this was non-serialized, episodic television, we know the real reason is the need to return the characters to the status quo for the next episode. And a promotional photo from this episode made it to the cover of a 1977 Dynamite magazine I remember seeing at school. Viewers had to wait 10 days for the next episode as the show moves to Monday nights at an earlier time slot of 8 p.m. 7 Central with Episode 4, The Innocent.
3: How close is he? Just at the edge of scanner range. inside that barrier now before it closes jeremy jeremy come
1: back it's a trap you can't wait to get outside away from me can you
0: while running from francis and the sandman the trio take refuge in an underground bunker complex occupied by a girl lisa and two goofy robots As Logan and Jessica are the first people she has ever met, she naturally falls for Logan, but is unprepared to emotionally deal with the feelings of love and jealousy being around new people bring. This spells danger for the others, as Lisa is much more than meets the eye, as Jessica and Rim soon find themselves wished into the cornfield. This episode was written by Ray Brenner and D.C. Fontana, based on a story by Brenner. The director was Michael Priest. Very early on in his career, he went on to direct 62 episodes of Dallas and 70 episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. Lisa Eilbacher played Lisa. She was Juliet in the Naked Montague episode of Man from Atlantis. She had a recurring role on The Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries, Later, a recurring role on Midnight Caller, and notably appeared on the film Beverly Hills Cop. There's not too much to say about this run-of-the-mill episode, other than Lisa's robots are very ridiculous-looking, even for 70s TV. And another episode, another outpost, that seemingly has no issues with food, energy, and supplies. Although this might partially be explained if Lisa is the last survivor that inherited a well-stocked government installation, as was indicated in the script. And yes, already the show has moved to a new night in time, which is never good. Now airing on Monday nights at 7 central, Instead of the much more logical Friday night, where viewers now expected the likes of Wonder Woman, Planet of the Apes, Kolchak, and Kung Fu, the show would now be in a more family-friendly time slot, up against Little House on the Prairie, a top-ten show. Who made this decision? Episode 5, Man Out of Time.
3: ha up! We have a window. Can you make it work? My dear Logan, really? We can't allow him to destroy our world. Comes a question of which one of you will change
1: history. Save our lives or destroy theirs.
0: Stopping to investigate an electrical disturbance, the trio encounter a probe that materializes in front of them that contains a rabbit? Meanwhile, 200 years ago, in a world on the verge of nuclear annihilation, a team of scientists from the Sanctuary Project is experimenting with time travel and now send a human, Dr. Eakins, tasked with retrieving historical records from the future in order to prevent the nuclear war. Eakins befriends Logan, Jessica, and Rim in order to travel to retrieve these records, but unknown to them... His success means their society will never exist. When they arrive at what remains of the Sanctuary Project, they meet the descendants of the scientists who have turned the enclosed computer console into an altar and built a generic religion out of a few surviving concepts of the past. When the trio find out the truth of Eakin's origins, they must choose whether or not to help him return to the past and thus end existence as they know it, an episode with some meat on it in what is clearly the best one so far. The episode credit read, written by Noah Ward. This was a pen name used by none other than writer David Gerald, a name he used instead of his own when his work has been rewritten to its detriment, as he puts it. He also used this name on a 1985 episode of Tales of the Dark Side. Yes, changes were made to his script before shooting, which is not uncommon. David can be very opinionated and outspoken. He never liked the Logan's Run story premise to begin with, and hated the film. He even got into a public argument with William F. Nolan in the pages of Starlog magazine over the course of several issues. If you want to kill a couple of hours looking them up, they're all on archive.org. Gerald became involved in writing for the series due to the involvement of producer Leonard Katzman and D.C. Fontana, both of whom he respected and even claimed he wouldn't have a problem if they rewrote him. Len Katzman is the finest producer I have met since I wrote The Trouble with Tribbles for Gene L. Kuhn. He respects writers, he allows them their own visions, and he gives writers a chance to tell their stories their own ways first. After all, it may work, And if it doesn't, well, you're paying for a rewrite anyway, and at least the writer has a chance. Lynn Katzman is on the writer's side, and he has story sense, which is the most important quality that the producer needs. Dorothy Fontana is easily the best story editor in Hollywood today, at least I haven't met any better. If she is working on a show, I know that there is at least one person there who believes that integrity and good storytelling are synonymous and I know my script will be in good hands, even if it does have to be changed after it gets out of my typewriter. I know I won't be embarrassed if Dorothy Fontana does the changing. Gerald's nom de plume, no award, later became an inside joke at the Hugo Awards, which is another rabbit hole I'll leave you to look up. The episode was directed by Nicholas Colasanto. Yes, Coach from Cheers directed this episode. He had directing credits for 31 different TV series, including Hawaii Five-O, Columbo, and Chips. Paul Sheenar was Dr. Eakins. He was a working actor in the 60s and 70s and was last seen in the film The Big Blue before his death in 1989. Mel Ferrer was Analog, the high priest of the Sanctuary Descendants. I recognized him from The Fantastic Journey and Wonder Woman, and he had a long career with over 100 acting credits. We had a well-acted, well-written episode, which gave us a break from the standard formula of protagonists enter an isolated outpost of people, and one with much higher stakes than Jessica and Logan's freedom. I wish they had gotten more into the idea of Eakin's sanctuary, possibly becoming known as the runner myth. But that would have been a lot to pack into this already well-packed episode. There was no time being filled. Every scene had dialogue or action that advanced the plot. There was a lot presented in this 49 minutes. I'm betting some of the rewrites were simplifications of a well-packed story. The meaning of Rim's name, Reclective Entity Mobile, is mentioned for the first time. Rim explains it means... Self-Programming, Problem-Solving in Human Form The computers at the Sanctuary Project that controlled the time-traveling machine and record events after the start of the war are made up in part of AN FSQ-7 panels. The Q7 was a 1950s-era computerized command and control system for Cold War ground controlled interception used in the US Air Force semi-automatic ground environment air defense network. The futuristic looking components of the Q7 have shown up on the time tunnel, Battlestar Galactica, war games, sliders, well over 80 films and TV shows. In this episode, Logan shows a surprising knowledge of history, which seems extremely unlikely given his upbringing in the city of domes where there were no people over 30 passing down knowledge, and information was withheld from the population regarding the true state of the world. Compare this slogan to the Michael York Logan from the film, and how naive he and Jessica were about anything outside their City of Domes scope of knowledge. Episode 6, Half-Life, airing October thirty first, 1977.
1: The boosters lied.
3: They've never been processed. Take care of them. You won't feel a thing. I believe you. Hodok! Easy, Logan. Can we talk?
1: These matters are better settled by hand-to-hand combat. The
0: trio encounter a society where all who live there must be processed whereby use of a transporter like device have negative human traits mentally and physically removed creating a physical duplicate a negative who is then cast out of their society while the positives live in relative luxury Logan and Rem have to deal with the positive Jessica who is clearly not the same person as before and must attempt to reintegrate her and prevent themselves from being processed Meanwhile, it turns out that, unknown to the leader of the society, his own wife is a negative, throwing into doubt the effectiveness of the procedure. Episode written by Shyman Winselberg and directed by Stephen Stern. Winselberg was a regular TV writer in the 60s and 70s. He had written episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel, Star Trek, Naked City, Lost in Space, and Mannix, among others. Stephen Stern directed a number of TV movies in the 70s and 80s, somebody Amanda and crew over at the Made for TV Mayhem podcast is familiar with. His credits include Mazes and Monsters, Anatomy of a Seduction, Portrait of an Escort, Portrait of a Showgirl, as well as the film The Devil and Max Devlin. Stern just died in 2018 at the age of 80. This one stars recognizable character actor William Smith, Lynn Berman, as well as a young Kim Cattrall in her sixth acting role. Berman was Dr. Simon Mills in the Captain America TV movies. I caught on to the gimmick with this one very early on, and I have to say it's an interesting take on The Enemy Within from Star Trek. Instead of being an accident... People in this society intentionally put themselves in the transporter to rid themselves of those personality traits perceived as negative. Interesting, although not altogether unpredictable. It doesn't really tread any new ground with this concept, but they did use some Star Trek sound effects. The processor was a pretty cool-looking set, and the follower is actually used in this episode for the first time since the pilot Logan uses it as a signal light. I was beginning to wonder if we'd ever see it used again. This was the second episode produced, but the sixth aired. Episode 7, Crypt.
2: Next on Logan's Run...
1: You have the knowledge. Take the serum to those six below. They may be... mankind's... salvation. Uh Don't they all deserve to live?
3: But only three of them can.
1: I would give anything, Logan, for a chance like that.
3: So would the others.
0: Driving through the ruins of an old city at night, some type of sensor light is activated, and Logan stops the car to investigate. They enter the building... And a message on a video screen automatically plays with a message from 200 years ago that tells of a plague that struck the survivors of the nuclear holocaust. The surviving scientific community went into an underground complex where six representatives were cryogenically frozen, after which the cure was found. When the trio enter the underground complex, an earthquake results in the smashing of one of the vials, leaving only three doses. The earthquake triggers the revival sequence, and the survivors awaken. The six survivors ask Logan and Jessica to decide which of them gets the doses. But while they decide, one by one, the survivors are murdered, and the episode becomes a whodunit. The episode was written by Alfred Hayes from a story by Harlan Ellison. Directed by Michael Caffey in his only Logan's Run credit, he was a regular 70s and 80s TV director. This one had a number of recognizable actors. Christopher Stone, an actor commonly seen in the 70s and 80s in plenty of TV, name a show and he was probably on it. In 1980, he married Dee Wallace and she became Dee Wallace Stone for a time and became his co-star in The Howling and Cujo. Chris Stone died in 1995 at 53. Korean-born Tech oh also appeared, with 116 acting credits, starting with I Spy in 1965. He was on Hawaii Five-O, Charlie's Angels, and MASH several times each, and in the 90s was on Highlander, Kung Fu The Legend Continues, Stargate SG-1, and Seven Days. He died in April 2018. Actress Ellen Weston was on Lucan, The Fantastic Journey, and Wonder Woman. Actress Neva Patterson had a long career and later played Mike Donovan's scheming mother, Eleanor Dupree, on the 2V miniseries. Liam Sullivan had played corrupt leader Parman on the Plato's Stepchildren episode of Star Trek. Later, he had recurring roles on Dallas and Falcon Crest, among his 123 credits. Adrian Larusa was in a few shows in the seventies, including the Amazing Spider-Man CBS series, as well as the film *The Man Who Fell to Earth*. The follower gets used as a flashlight again. I wonder when that thing is going to run out of power. And we get a description of the operation of the Sandman gun by Logan, as promised earlier. It has three settings: stun, blast, and kill, and shoots a beam of amplified light. We've seen this operation since the first episode, but this is the first time it is described. This is quite different from the way the flame guns were presented in the film, which had no variable options, supposedly shot charged particles, and had a capacity of 120 firings. The reason for the change was a family values issue at CBS. Especially since its move to the earlier time slot on Mondays, Logan's run was considered a family show. So the operation of the gun was changed. Even the word gun could not be used, and it was called a weapon. The producers were only allowed to fire the gun at lethal settings one or two times per episode, but were allowed as many stun shots as they liked. This is similar to the fate of Galactica 1980, which faced similar issues with the network sensors. Even so, Logan's run was still called the most violent show on the air in the 1977-78 TV season by the self-appointed National Citizens Committee for Broadcasting. One odd thing throughout this episode, both RIM and Logan's outfits got a bunch of dust on them during the earthquake, and it stays on their clothes throughout the whole show. Neither of them bothered to dust themselves off? Episode 8 Fear Factor aired November fourteenth, nineteen seventy-seven.
3: Is this a hospital? I can assure you, it's a great deal more than that. It's a lunatic asylum. It's
1: worse than Carousel.
3: Silence. Rem is here with us.
2: What are you doing to him? He's just being deprogrammed.
3: Relax. Soon, be over. Let her go. She'll never have to think for herself again unless you decide to join us.
0: With their scanners picking up the usage of an electrical system, the trio stops at a large mansion, where doctors seem to be caring for mental patients. Soon, they find themselves prisoners. Logan and Rim are subjected to various tests, like being in a wind tunnel and having fireballs shot at them. Jessica is questioned by a tribunal about her emotional responses to Carousel. It turns out an elite group of doctors rules over the menials who have been given virtual lobotomies. Rem muses that the inmates are now running the asylum as the trio enlists the aid of a sympathetic doctor to escape the compound. This was written by John Sherlock in one of his only two industry writing credits and directed by Gerald Mayer. He was a director and producer known for The Six Million Dollar Man, Mannix, and Mission Impossible, and he died in 2001. Ed Nelson was in this. He was a prolific actor well-known for his role on Peyton Place in the mid-60s. Jared Martin. He, of course, was Varian from The Fantastic Journey and will cross paths with him again on Tales of the Gold Monkey this year. Here we have clearly the most ridiculous episode so far. Not only the concept, but the execution of it. This is another case where I agree with John Kenneth Muir's reflections of these episodes. Yet another tiny isolated enclave of society like a lunatic asylum that could continue to exist intact and continue to operate after a nuclear war. After hundreds of years, complete with seemingly unlimited power, supplies, food, and resources to support working computer systems, to run wind tunnels, and holographic obstacle courses. Where do the patients come from? We've already seen Logan's Run versions of Charlie X, The Enemy Within. Now, here's the Logan's Run take on Dagger of the Mind. There was one good line, when Jared Martin is told of the dangers outside the complex, Logan responds, You're right, it is dangerous, but that's part of being free, the willingness to live with danger. And again, Logan seems well-read in ancient history, something that seems completely out of character compared to the film Logan. This was the third episode produced, but the eighth one that aired. Following this episode, in the final week of November, CBS cancels Logan's Run in the first wave of cancellations for the 1977 fall season, along with The Fitzpatricks, We've Got Each Other, Rafferty, and Busting Loose. This was the same week Man from Atlantis was canceled. Skipping forward a month to December 19th, Episode 9, The Judas Goat.
2: Escape the city once and I'm going to stay free by keeping us here. I have no choice. You can be guests or prisoners, it's up to you. But you cannot leave. Ever.
3: Reverse search. Discharge. Logan. I violated the first
0: law. I took a human life. For the first time since the pilot, we revisit the City of Domes. As we open on Hal 14, a runner being chased by Sandman Joseph 8, Joseph terminates the runner and gets special instructions to bring his body to research lab in Green Quadrant 2. There, laser cosmetic surgery alters Joseph's appearance to duplicate Hal 14's appearance, including imprinting Hal's memories, He is then brought to the elders, who task him with finding and bringing back Logan and Jessica. Very quickly, we see Joseph, as Hal, encounter the solar craft, where he finds a sympathetic Logan and Jessica. Soon, though, the vehicle is trapped by a force field, and the four are captured by the civilization of the weak. They encounter Matthew 12, the first runner. Matthew has set up shop in some type of pre-Holocaust installation that contains a lot of computer equipment, and he leads the people that live there as sort of a benevolent ruler. He has repaired one of the main computers, which can manufacture supplies, reconstituted food, and which is used to provide joy to the people, some type of electronic VR, which allows the user to re-experience whatever memory they choose. Matthew also intends to prevent the four from ever leaving to preserve their way of life from discovery by the city of domes. Hal schemes with Matthew to release him in exchange for Rim staying behind to repair all the remaining computer systems. Rim agrees to this and the human trio of Logan, Jessica, and Hal return to the solar craft. Matthew lied, however, about letting them leave and builds up a charge of energy to remotely zap the solar craft as soon as they enter. Rem foils this at the last minute, resulting in Matthew's death. Now free of their provider, the people must now learn to provide for themselves by ancient means of hunting and farming, finding their joy in the form of living instead of electronic escapism. Having convinced Logan and Jessica to return to the City of Domes, ostensibly to prove to all there is life outside and lead a revolt against the Sandmen, the trio are unknowingly being led into a trap. This was written by John Meredith Lucas, who wrote four episodes of Star Trek and was a line producer in its second season. It was directed by Paul Krasny. He directed a bunch of episodes of Mission Impossible, Mannix, Quincy, and Heart to Heart. This is the first of three Logan's Run episodes he directed. Nicholas Hammond guest starred. The name should be familiar to anyone who ever watched the 1970s Spider-Man live-action series. The premiere movie of Spider-Man had aired in September, but the following series would not yet start airing until April of 1978. Still, he would have been pretty recognizable to viewers. And this was a reunion of sorts for Nicholas Hammond and Heather Menzies. They both starred in The Sound of Music as brother and sister Friedrich and Louisa von Trapp. Lance Legault was Matthew 12. He was in a ton of television from this era. He played bad guys on Knight Rider, Auto Man, Airwolf. You might remember him as Colonel Decker on The A-Team. Spencer Milligan also appeared, primarily known as Rick Marshall father of Will and Holly, on Land of the Lost. Okay, another good episode, and a lot of ideas, probably too many for a single episode, are thrown our way in this one, and a lot of questions. Just dealing with Matthew 12 and his Civilization of the Week would be enough for a standard episode. But after four episodes with very little seen of the Sandmen, we find out the elders of the City of Domes have not forgotten about the trio, sending a disguised Sandman after them. Matthew's compound with its electronic escapism is interesting as a comment on society, although we weren't given enough time with them to come to Logan's conclusion that they were his slaves. They were expected to contribute by doing regular patrols of the area and little to nothing else. Perhaps something got lost in the editing. We also had Rem, having to make an instant choice to save his friends while causing the death of another human. A major character development for Rem, which should have been given much more screen time. We also were given some very interesting tidbits of information that give us some insight on the society of the City of Domes. Runners evidently have only been around for six years. Matthew also has the highest number we've ever seen, 12 possibly implying a time span of 360 years since they first started numbering people. Yet the year of the city in the TV show is 2319, and the nuclear holocaust happened in 2119, only 200 years earlier. The highest number we'd seen otherwise was 7, which would make sense to be the highest number you would get to if you were allowing the population to live to 30, then reassigning the name. Perhaps some people die from accidents or for other reasons, but there just doesn't seem to have been enough time elapsed to get to a twelfth generation. Maybe this number was chosen at random, with no particular meaning behind the number. This is not really explored. The fact that there have only been runners for six years raises even more questions. Were there sandmen before this? What did they do if there were no runners? Also, the series has given us the impression so far that the trio has traveled pretty far from the city of Domes by now, yet Joseph catches up to them almost immediately, and they travel back to the city just as fast. Are they driving in circles in the area? This is not addressed, but it does make some logical sense if they are searching in a radius from the city, but this is never explained. Episode 10, Future Past airs January 2nd, 1978, as the now-canceled series is airing its final episodes opposite Lucan on ABC and Little House on the Prairie on NBC, as previously mentioned.
3: You want Jessica and Sanctuary. Suppose I give you both.
1: Logan, no! There is no! No! What What have you done to me?
3: Only what I'm here to do. If I free Logan... Will you go wherever I take you? Jessica, don't go with him! There is a wish in all humans. A wish? To die. Are you my mother? Go away! Please tell me! Go away! What happens if they reach D level?
0: D is for death. Running from Francis, the trio encounter Ariana, a seemingly kind, hospitable woman, that welcomes them into her building, while Logan and Jessica quickly fall asleep. Rim quickly learns Ariana is an android that runs a dream analysis station left over from when the healers were still alive. Soon, Logan and Jessica are deep into disturbing dreams, causing them to face their subconscious fears. Francis arrives and shoots Ariana, and the trio are briefly cornered by Francis. Of course, they turn the tables on their captors, and Rim has to repair and say goodbye to Ariana. This was written by Catherine Powers. She wrote three episodes of The Fantastic Journey, an episode of Wonder Woman, one of the most reviled episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Code of Honor, but then balanced that out with her DS9 episode, Past Prologue, the episode that introduced Garrick to DS9. Directed by Michael O'Hurlihy, director of the Man War episode of Man from Atlantis, Tomorrow Is Yesterday from Star Trek, as well as 36 Hawaii Five-O's, 9 episodes of The Fall Guy, and 20 episodes of The A-Team. Mariette Hartley was Ariana. She should need no introduction to any regular listener of this podcast. She was Zerabeth in the All Our Yesterdays episode of Star Trek, and somewhat recently I caught her appearance on the return of Count Yorga, and we'll talk about her quite a bit in the next podcast about Genesis 2. While a bit slow at times, this was a character development episode in contrast to the prior one. Logan's dreams are pretty straightforward of being chased by Sandman, But Jessica's are far more interesting and explore the concepts of the beliefs and practices of the City of Domes and the subconscious fears these may inflict on its citizens. These scenes are visually well shot with a lot of imagery and symbolism. Meanwhile, we get to see Rem explore the idea of whether or not he is capable of love. Jessica's dreams had visually interesting scenes, made possible in part by the work of production designer Mort Rabinowitz, who built a reverse perspective set which included a 12-foot high door to make her appear to grow smaller. Exteriors of this episode were filmed at the very recognizable Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. The observatory was built in 1933 and has been featured in numerous films, such as the Terminator films, the Back to the Future films, and the Rocketeer. On TV, it has been seen in Agent Carter, Chips, Star Trek Voyager, and Wonder Woman. Episode 11, Carousel, aired January 16th, 1978.
1: What is the function of a Sandman? To terminate the traitors called runners. You were a runner. I have... No such memory. What happened
3: to Logan? Logan has been tranquilized with a memory warp. Find out the extent of his memory loss.
1: Are you suggesting I seduce him?
3: Considering our circumstances, yes, I would.
1: Hello, Logan.
3: Logan will die. That part of the plan has never changed.
0: (laughs) While being chased by Francis, the solar craft inexplicably breaks down, and the trio have to abandon the vehicle. Unknown people shoot a dart at Logan and beam Jessica and Rim to an unknown location. A representative from the unknown advanced race explains Logan was shot with a memory dart that temporarily erases the last year of memory. While Jessica and Rim negotiate for their freedom, Logan willingly returns with Francis to the City of Domes. He is debriefed by the city computer and returns to his life of pleasure and policing as a sandman, intending to pick up with an old girlfriend where he left off. Jessica and Rim return to the city to enlist the aid of other runners to rescue Logan. This plan includes trying to seduce Logan, but unknown to everyone, the elders intend to have Logan die at Carousel. Can Jessica and Rim save Logan from being terminated on Carousel? And will Logan's memories be revived? This was written by DC Fontana and Richard L. Breen Jr., from a story by Breen. The son of author Richard L. Breen Sr., Breen Jr. also has writing credits for Mannix and Ironside. Directed by Irving J. Moore, his second Logan's Run episode, Morgan Woodward returns as the elder Morgan, and Melody Anderson shows up in only her second screen appearance. She was later Dale Arden on Flash Gordon and Brooke McKenzie on Manimal. And it was very interesting to revisit the City of Domes after 10 episodes. Sort of intended as a refresher, perhaps for new viewers. Of course, filmed before they knew the series was canceled. For the setup we are given, the ending is very pat and easy, returning everything to the status quo. And the title of the episode seemed like clickbait. For an episode to be titled Carousel, we are really given no payoff as we saw more of Carousel in the prior episode than in this one. Interior shots for the City of Domes for this episode were filmed in the Blue Building of the Pacific Design Center in Los Angeles. Exteriors were shot at the L.A. River. Brief scenes from the Logan's Run film were used and effectively edited in, and I think the giant wall crystal from the walking into Carousel scene was retrieved and put up on the wall on location. Carousel was the last episode to be broadcast nationwide. Episode 12, Night Visitors, aired January 23rd, 1978. Or did it? A number of online sources say West Coast stations didn't air it and other time zones did, but it doesn't appear to be that simple. The vast majority of TV listings from all over the country show the animated specials You're a Good Sport, Charlie Brown, followed by *Ricky, tikki tavi aired on CBS that night in the Logan's Run time slot. However, local TV listings from a few markets, regardless of time zone, indeed list Logan's Run as the first CBS primetime show of the evening. My conclusion is that local TV listings that listed Logan Drawn on January 23rd were going by CBS's original schedule for the evening and did not reflect the network preemption with CBS airing the animated specials instead. And there's no evidence the last two episodes were ever aired by CBS. The following two Mondays, CBS ran other shows in this time slot, and the air dates for the final three episodes on IMDb and Wikipedia are incorrect. For decades, TV reference books, such as The Complete Directory to Primetime Network and Cable TV Shows by Brooks and Marsh, as well as My Old Standby, Television 1970-1980 by Vincent Terrace, correctly stated the final episode aired by CBS was Carousel on January 16th. The editor of an old Logan's Run fanzine, The Circuit, lamented how she felt the series would never return and no one would ever see the unaired episodes. Original versions of the Wikipedia page for the series likewise state the final three episodes went unaired by CBS. The East Coast, West Coast claim didn't appear on Wikipedia until 2012. So how did this West Coast didn't air the final 3 episodes but the East Coast did legend start. This information first appeared online in 2001 on the Logan's Run fan site Virtual Vicky and was based on anecdotal accounts that one station in upstate New York did run these episodes on the dates indicated. Emails and attempts to contact the person behind Virtual Vicky were unsuccessful. The final three episodes were unaired by CBS and went unseen by U.S. audiences until the fall of 1990 when TNT began airing Logan's Run on Saturday afternoons.
3: Jessica, follow me. Jessica, I believe that this house is haunted by ghosts. Was it me
1: you were expecting,
0: Marianne? It was a dark and stormy night. For the first time on the series, it's raining, and the trio are out driving around in the dark and run out of power, pulling up at an old house. They are greeted by an odd couple, and the trio are put up for the night, and things take a weird turn when Logan starts seeing things in the mirror that aren't there otherwise. Okay, I think you know where this is going. Yes, they ran out of gas and came upon a haunted house. But we're not done yet. It turns out the house dwellers are devil-worshipping ghosts, intent on using the body of Jessica to reincarnate the dead wife of one of the ghosts. This episode was written by producer Leonard Katzman, and it was the second episode directed by Paul Krasny. Guest-starring George Maharis, mainly a 60s and 70s actor, appropriately enough, he was in Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby, the TV shows Naked City and Route 66, and he was on Fantasy Island several times, and he was the lead on the 1970 TV series The Most Deadly Game. Barbara Babcock was a very recognizable actress on two episodes of Star Trek, both uh, "A Taste of Armageddon" and "Plato's Stepchildren." She had regular roles on Dallas, Hill Street Blues, The Law and Harry McGraw, and Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. And Paul Mantee was in this one. He was a regular TV actor, in Gene Roddenberry's The Lieutenant, Mannix, Quincy. Perhaps he was best known for 1964's Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which I have on Criterion Collection Blu-ray. It's an excellent movie. This is easily the most ridiculous, forgettable, and lazily written episode of the series. I can only imagine they were short of script... Katzman cranked this out, and it was originally intended to be a Halloween episode, as shows of this era routinely produced out-of-character episodes for Halloween. But it turns out this was the final episode written and filmed before the cancellation announcement was made by CBS, which would put the production in late November. The only thing of note in this episode is that feelings seem to have developed between Logan and Jessica and the two kiss episode 13 turnabout unaired by cbs although imdb states january 30th 1978 however cbs ran good times and baby i'm back a short-lived comedy with demond wilson during the logan's run time slot on this night as well as the following week
3: finish what I started. Runners are a danger to both our societies. Allow me to take them back to my superiors, and I assure you the punishment they receive will be equal with yours. Death? Death.
0: Driving through the desert, the trio come upon a woman passed out on the ground. She is wearing a hijab, as well as a niqab or face veil, which Jessica removes to give her water, which distresses her when she comes to. Soon, riders on horseback arrive and are displeased someone has crossed their borders. The civilization of the week is the city of Zidor, influenced or descended from Middle Eastern cultures, and they have an isolationist, religious society, and worldview. Francis and a Sandman also show up to complicate matters and the whole lot of them are taken prisoner. Sentenced to death, Francis and the woman Mia they helped at the beginning actually spring Logan and Jessica from jail, killing the other Sandman in the process. With Rim left behind, the remaining three set out across the desert on foot, but are recaptured, leaving them back where they started. In this time, Francis is the one needing rescuing as he engages in personal combat to the death with a Zydor military guard. This was written by Michael Michaelian and Alfred Hayes. Michaelian was a writer on Kung Fu and The Fantastic Journey, and wrote episodes of the 1970s Spider-Man and Star Trek The Next Generation. This was Hayes' second Logan's Run episode. He wrote movie screenplays in the 1950s, as well as several episodes of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Manix and one episode of Time Express. And this was the final episode directed by Paul Krasny. Guest-starring Nehemiah Persoff, a prolific character actor who played the ruler of Zydor, he often played similar roles. In The Land of Giants, he played a dictator named Titus. He was also the Eastern Alliance leader on Battlestar Galactica, among some 200 acting credits. Gerald McCraney also appeared. His acting career was in full swing by this time, and he was getting regular roles on TV. Later, of course, he was on Simon and Simon and Major Dad, as well as the current series House of Cards and This Is Us. What's interesting about this one is the implications of a Middle Eastern Islamic-style city and civilization within driving distance of the Washington, D.C. area complete with closed borders and a futuristic depiction of Sharia law. In the episode, a fundamentalist was in the seat of power, with more moderate factions overturning his rule, in sort of a reversal of what was going on at the time in Iran. The episode ends with the women pleased they are able to remove their niqabs under the less fundamentalist ruler. At any rate, such a script would not be touched today with a 10-foot pole. Episode 14, Stargate, unaired by CBS, who, on the claimed air date of February 6th, 1978, again ran Good Times and Baby I'm Back.
3: I can't believe it's this hot anywhere on Earth.
1: Just as our testing indicated,
3: you will be of enormous use to us. There's more of me over here. They've taken me apart. It's a matter transporter. And it's said... Set- to receive an alien army is a couple of aliens being prepared to take you over your friends can no longer help you animal carcasses just torn apart mutants probably caused by genetic breakdown
0: on a warm sunny day the trio find a man who is freezing his people quickly show up and retrieve him and offer hospitality which our travelers accept Logan and Jessica find themselves roofied, and RIM is taken away for examination. It is learned the people are aliens who have taken human form. They are from a much hotter planet, and they want RIM's electronic parts to repair their transporter, which will bring more of them to Earth. And they want Logan and Jessica to duplicate their bodies as hosts for two aliens. With the help of a friendly human, Logan and Jessica must repair and rescue Rem and stop what would be an alien invasion. At the end, we return to the status quo with Rem fully repaired as the trio drive off in the solar craft to the next adventure. This was written by Dennis O'Neill. He wrote comic book stories for Batman starting in the 1970s, and was one of the guiding forces behind returning the Batman character to its dark roots from the campiness of the 1960s, and he was the creator of Batman characters Rachel al Ghul and Dr. Leslie Tompkins. This is his only non-comic book-related TV credit. Directed by Curtis Harrington, director of offbeat 60s horror movies Night Tide and Queen of Blood, the 1973 TV movie The Cat Creature, and episodes of Lucan, Wonder Woman, Hotel, Dynasty, and The Colbys. Harrington died in 2007. Guest stars were Eddie Firestone. He was in a bunch of TV westerns like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, and Death Valley Days. He was also on Kolchak the Night Stalker, Buck Rogers, Galactica 1980, and Knight Rider. He died in 2007. Paul Carr also appeared. He was Lieutenant Kelso, the navigator who met his doom, strangled by the power conduits, manipulated by Gary Mitchell in the second pilot of Star Trek, where no man has gone before. He also did a lot of other sci-fi roles, the Time Tunnel, the Invaders, Buck Rogers, and a recurring role on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Like many on Logan's run, he also worked on Wonder Woman and The Amazing Spider-Man. This final episode had another one of those conclusions that just seemed easy and sudden and served only to return things to the status quo. The story idea wasn't particularly bad. It just seemed out of place in the world that's so far been presented to us on this series. It was unclear why the aliens needed Logan and Jessica at all, since they already had the ability to create duplicate human bodies. And why Logan and Jessica would die when the duplicate bodies were inhabited was not explained. Shades of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was in production at the time for a December 1978 release. Also, the way Rim simply allowed himself to be disassembled just seemed wrong. Forgotten TV will return after these messages.
3: The Escalapter Mark III replaces traditional automated hairdressing and cosmetic devices with the latest in servo-surgical designs. Its multiple surgical laser beams are focused with microscopic accuracy to restructure your face and body any way you like. Imagine a whole new face in less than an hour.
2: Welcome to the 23rd century. The perfect world of total pleasure. MGM presents the Saul David production of Logan's Run. Run
3: Logan.
1: Just imagine the fulfillment of every
3: fantasy. Run Logan. The
1: satisfaction of every vanity. Run Logan! Absolute attainment of every wish.
2: Run! There's just one cat. Run Logan! Uh-huh. Logan's Run. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Released by United Artists. Logan's Run. It's the perfect world of total pleasure.
1: There's just one catch.
0: This is another series I have only vague memories of watching as a kid. I know I watched it a couple of times after Wonder Woman on Friday nights and remember Rim and the Solar Craft but I doubt we ever caught one after its moved to Monday nights when it was on against Little House on the Prairie. And this was not a series I ever caught reruns of, so I have no specific memories of plot lines or episode details. Logan's run was an ambitious and expensive proposition for CBS. Not only did they buy the TV rights for $9 million, as mentioned earlier, each episode was said to cost about $370,000 to produce although D.C. Fontana states that in reality, the budget was closer to $170,000 per episode. Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts had worked together since 1947 on films like White Heat and Captain Horatio Hornblower, later working on television shows Ironside and Mannix, among other things, before creating Charlie's Angels for ABC in 1976, leaving that show to be run by Aaron Spelling The pair were free to take on Logan's Run in 1977. They later produced the short-lived Time Express, considered in episode 21 of this podcast, as well as Nero Wolfe for NBC in 1981, which was the last project the pair worked on together. Gregory Harrison was cast as Logan 5 at age 27. This was an early role for him, having only appeared in bit parts on a couple of series and TV movies. I remember sitting in the theater at the Cinerama Dome a year before the series, watching Logan's run with Michael York, being absolutely fascinated. I've always been a huge science fiction fan, and watching the feature, I was thinking, this is wonderful, I love this, but never imagining that I was going to be playing that part, and wearing that costume, and using the same gun. A lot of the stuff we used came directly from the feature. It was quite a thrill when I got cast and screen tested. Heather Menzies' big claim to fame prior to Logan's run was as daughter Louisa in 1965's The Sound of Music. She had acted fairly regularly on TV since and was also 27 when cast as Jessica. British actor Donald Moffat was cast as Rem, He was 46, was a distinguished Shakespearean actor, and had been acting on television for 20 years. In episode 5, Man Out of Time, we were told what RIM stood for, but the original proposed name for his character was Omo, Operational Machine Organism. I think everyone would agree, RIM is a lot better. Randy Powell was Francis. He was 27 and had a dozen acting credits prior. This was the first regular series role for all four actors. One of the key people responsible for keeping the series on course was story editor Dorothy, or DC Fontana, who TV fans know from her work on Star Trek, the original and animated series, as well as The Fantastic Journey. She was brought on for her science fiction expertise, though her suggestions were sometimes ignored by producers Goff and Roberts. They ran scripts through the typewriter one last time. Frequently, script and character emphasis was changed over our protests. They were also the ones so in love with their character Rem that at times the series threatened to be Rem's run, not Logan's run. Unfortunately, they were the ones with the final approvals. Too many times, Rim, wonderfully acted by Donald Moffat, by the way, dominated a storyline or saved Logan and Jessica when, by all rights, they should have been saving themselves. Rim had too many answers too often. Logan and Jessica should have been discovering answers for themselves. In addition to Fontana and producer Lynn Katzman, Goff and Roberts also brought over. Director of Photography Irving Lippman, and Associate Producer William Cairncross from The Fantastic Journey. The wardrobe and costume design was done by Academy Award winner Bill Thomas. He had worked on the costumes on Spartacus, Mary Poppins, Kathy Lee Crosby's 1974 Wonder Woman outfit, the Logans-run film, and many, many more. Donald Moffat's rim tunic he designed was recently auctioned for $2,250, and a Sandman costume went for $3,437. Early on, I mentioned Heather Menzies' wardrobe. By the second episode, it had slightly changed from the pinkish, silky dress with metallic belt and light peach tights to a redesigned gossamer pink dress with cutouts to expose her arms, slits down the sides to the waist, fabric belt with metal ring belt buckle, and no tights. The dress essentially resembled a nightie. Like the film counting on some sex appeal with the casting of Jenny Agutter and Farrah Fawcett, The producers and network wanted to ensure the same for the series. There was much discussion and intent behind her costume design. After the pilot, it was specifically directed she would not wear a bra or pantyhose. When the first footage from the series was shown to network executives, one reportedly said, "'Gad, we can't have her running around like that. This is a children's show.' However, it was decided kids would be absorbed with the laser guns, robots, and special effects, while older viewers would be absorbed with Heather, making it a win-win for everybody. This was the age of so-called jiggle television, and Heather had some comments about it. Charlie's Angels knows how to sell a show, so why not go with the trend? In the pilot show, they had me running around in a pink gunny sack with a bionic bra. I also wore pink tights and ballet slippers. They had my hair pulled back in berets. It made me look like a 12-year-old. Now, I look like a woman. Many male viewers likely agreed with Heather's assessment of the situation. Gregory Harrison adds, I remember Heather was always in this skimpy little pink outfit. She never wore a bra, and you could always see her boobs underneath there. And when it was cold, boy, you could tell. In the final episode, Stargate, the one where they save the freezing alien at the beginning, Logan playfully slaps Jessica on her rear and comments, Jessica, if it ever really freezes, you'll be the first to know. Oh, the 70s. The music theme was by Lawrence Rosenthal. With 136 composing credits for film and TV music over the last half-century, from feature films like The Miracle Worker and Return of a Man Called Horse, to television projects such as Fantasy Island and Young Indiana Jones, his refined, melodic, symphonic style is widely admired, and he continues to be active in film and television. He did music for the opening credits and scored the pilot and three episodes. The main criticism often levied against the theme is the pew-pew-pew synthesized effect, which immediately dates it to the late 70s. Gerald Immel scored two episodes, utilizing a French impressionistic style plus electronics. A veteran MGM staffer Jeff Alexander did one, and a young Bruce Broughton for two episodes. The remaining five episodes reused music and did not receive original scoring. The Logan's Run TV series soundtrack actually received a limited-pressing CD release in 2004 by Film Score Monthly, a former print magazine, now online, that licenses original film and TV scores for limited release. I want to make sure and not skip over the contributions of Mort Rabinowitz, production designer for the series. He was given about $30,000 to build whatever sets were needed, sometimes 9 or 10 per episode. Rabinowitz did the art direction for the pilot and came back as production designer in episode 4, The Innocent, designing the robots for that episode. This was not very common in series television, as most series don't have a budget for a production designer and get by with an art director and other departments filling that spot. Logan's Run was the first TV series he worked on. He had been a successful fine artist with work on permanent display at museums in New York, Mexico, Houston, and Santa Fe in his home state. His work in movies had always been occasional and admittedly took the Logan's run job for the money and was initially skeptical his ideas would work for the show. I had some pretty grand ideas, and the cost figures for them were astronomical by TV standards. But CBS liked the designs and picked up the tab for the additional money. They wanted a first-class looking operation. After the pilot, our budget had to be geared down a bit, as always happens in television. But Goff and Roberts are still excited by the design of the show, and they back me up all the way. Among the props designed by Rabinowitz were the Sandman Laser Cannon and RIM's Tuning Fork Universal Tool. His design for the Hall of the Elders domed set built at minimal cost was actually considered by construction firms for commercial application. He went on to work on Salem's Lot, V. the Final Battle, and Time Express. Mort Rabinowitz died in 1998 at age 71. The solar craft that transported Logan and crew every week, as well as the Sandman ground car, was built by Dean Jeffries Auto Styling in Los Angeles. Jeffries was responsible for a number of film and TV vehicles over the years, the Black Beauty from the Green Hornet, the Monkey Mobile from the Monkees, the Landmaster from the film Damnation Alley, and others. The solar car was ostensibly a hovercraft on the show. The vehicle was built with a skirt around the bottom, concealing the wheels. Along with a sound effect, this was a fairly effective presentation. The solar car shows up again in Otherworld, the 1986 Quiet Riot music video The Wild and the Young, as well as several low-budget films. There was only one Sandman ground car built for the show. Originally, they had planned to build a second, but when the series got cancelled, so was the order for the second car. The ground car shows up in episodes of Chips, Otherworld, Knight Rider, the film Ice Pirates, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers music video You Got Lucky, and a series of Pepsi commercials. The Solarcraft was disassembled in 1990 to remake it into another vehicle. The Sandman ground car was sold to a collector from Belgium. This TV series was one of the earliest to use video to create the visual effects used for the series. Ron Hayes' visual effects did these for the series. He also did these electronic visual effects for the films Demon Seed and Star Crash. As far as the on-set special effects, Gregory Harrison has some interesting recollections. While filming Episode 3, Capture, he recalls, That show, we had a special effects man who didn't engender a lot of confidence. I remember I was supposed to get shot or somebody was supposed to get shot in that show. The special effects guy was doing a lot of drinking. I remember saying, no, I don't think we should put that squib on the person until we've tested it against the neoprene that will protect it. So we put the neoprene on a rock and blew up the squib. And there were pieces of rock that blew up behind it. That was one of my career lessons right there. I was careful enough to suggest a test and the test proved that the guy would have been disemboweled had he had the thing on. In fact, Harrison had several close calls over the course of the series. In the pilot, Logan uses his flame gun to blow a hole in the wall for the solar craft to drive through. Ostensibly, a simple effect. Not quite. The camera was behind me about 10 to 15 feet, and I was about 20 feet away from the wall. The special effects guy, I think it was the same guy, said... Okay, this is going to explode, not implode. So you can stand two feet from this wall, and when we blow it, it's going to all blow in the other direction. I said, Okay. So I walk up to about 15 feet away from the wall, aim my gun, the camera is shooting over my shoulder, and fire. He pushes the button off camera, and the wall blows up entirely towards me and knocks me back, knocks the camera, and holes burn through my black outfit. I'm sure it's the same special effects guy, which is why I didn't trust him when he said, yeah, you can hold this squib. I don't think he stayed in the business for too long after that. Apart from special effects, shooting Logan's run wasn't easy and was an ordeal for Harrison. I ended up working such tremendous hours on that show. I had walking pneumonia for the last six weeks of the season, working 10 to 13 hours a day every day, Falling over on the weekend, there was no break for me. It was relentless. I recall it mostly being more a survival effort than an artistic effort for me. During episode 13, Turnabout, Harrison was on horseback in Malibu Canyon and had another close call. We're just slowly going along. While we're filming This Isn't In The Show, my horse stepped on a squirrel hole that had become a beehive. And bees attacked. They came furiously out of this hole and attacked my horse and me. There were hundreds of bees attached to my black wool sandman outfit, pumping away trying to get their stingers through there, and I ended up with seventeen bee stings. Three or four in my head and hair and face, and several of them got through areas like elbows, knees, under my arms. I couldn't work for the rest of the day. I went into this sort of semi-coma for the day as a reaction to the stings. Fortunately, I wasn't allergic, or I would have died. It scared the hell out of everyone, and they shut down for the day. And the next day, my ankle is the size of my thighs. It was so swollen up from the bee stings. All my blood had settled into my legs. For days, I was miserable from all those bee stings, but we kept shooting. That was an interesting day. In addition to this interesting experience, his apartment also burned down during production. A number of inaccuracies exist on the end credits, IMDb, and even in the 1976 official press book for the Logan's Run theatrical film. This may be due to rewrites and film edits that were made that the people making the end credits just didn't catch up with. There was an early cut of the film screened in San Diego in May 1976 that contained scenes cut from the final version of the film. IMDb credits both Laura Lindsay and Virginia Ann Ford as the uncredited computer voice of the city computer in both the film and TV pilot. Laura Lindsay was a production assistant to a producer and also appeared as a woman runner in the film. Virginia Ann Ford's scene was cut from the film where she appeared as a nameless woman on Last Day on her way to Carousel. The official press book mistakenly credits her as Ann Ford. Early fan publications credited Laura Lindsay with being the computer voice, but Logan's run blogger Identify in early 2017 was able to confirm Virginia Ann Ford as the computer voice based on a reconstructed scene posted on YouTube by Logan's run fan Great Hall 75 that included bootlegged audio of the scene in question. This almost certainly locks Virginia Ann Ford as the computer voice. Another interesting fact is Virginia Ann Ford's appearance in 1971's The Love Machine, based on the book by Jacqueline Suzanne. The movie poster and trailer for this film prominently featured an Egyptian Ankh, and it was a plot point in the story. At the time, the Ankh becoming known in pop culture as a new age, eternal life, love, sex symbol. One thing is sure, the Egyptian Ankh was in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. But one wonders if a Logan's Run producer or screenwriter David Z. Goodman got the idea of including the Ankh in the film tangentially due to the casting of Virginia Ann Ford. At the time of cancellation, there were scripts and script treatments intended for production that were left unproduced. And there are plot synopses for three of these. These include the Guardians. The solar craft is damaged, and the trio take refuge with a commune of farmers. They learn of a nearby fort that has another solar craft that they can tap into for light and power. But the groups regularly fight each other. Logan and Rem discover the fort is an old missile base that survived intact, complete with still-armed nuclear missile. Jessica leads the farmers in a raid on the base and the button is pushed, starting the launch countdown. The trio must make the factions work together to stop another nuclear annihilation. The Thunder Sentinels, also known as the Thunder Gods, written by William F. Nolan and Dennis Etchison. In this episode, the trio would have encountered Native Americans in the Black Hills of the Dakotas that worship the carved heads of Mount Rushmore as gods venerate the Declaration of Independence, and long ago sought refuge in the mountains from the devil clouds of radioactivity. The trio are forced to undergo four tests of skill and bravery. The trio sets them straight that the gods they worship were men from history. When the solar craft drives away, a tattered American flag now flies on its roof. This was actually one of the earliest scripts written for the show. THE PLAYGROUND In this episode, Logan, Jessica, and Rim are shot at by robots when they approach a facility designed to raise children. The only problem is that these children act like seven-year-olds, but look to be almost 20. Something has gone very wrong in THE PLAYGROUND. A fourth unproduced episode, THE PEACEMAKERS, is known by title only, and no information is known for it that I can find. What was the public reaction to Logan's Run? A comic series was published by Marvel Comics from January to July 1977. It adapted the film over the first five issues, with art by comic artist George Perez. The last two issues featured original stories. Of course, this was a tie-in to the feature film, and not the series. In 1976, the Mego Corporation obtained the license for Logan's Run and experimented with figures of both the movie and TV versions. They were doing well with their 8-inch action figures with licenses from Planet of the Apes and Star Trek and at the time were the 6th-ranked American toy manufacturer. When the Logan's Run toy line was being developed, the TV series was canceled, so the toys were never shown or released to the public. For two decades, these were never seen by the public, but there were stories. In the mid-1980s, Long Island toy collector John McGonigal began telling other collectors of a news report he had seen in the late 70s about toys. McGonigal claimed that the report showed what happened when a toy company invested in a failed property. Supposedly, the TV news segment showed footage where cases of Mego, Logan's Run action figures were being thrown into an incinerator. In the summer of 2000, Mego figures of Francis and Rim first surfaced out of a private collection. It wasn't until 2007 that a figure of Logan, featuring the likeness of Gregory Harrison, was obtained by Mego Museum, one of only two prototypes believed to exist. A Jessica figure has never surfaced, nor have any weapons to go along with the figures. Interestingly, the Rim figure is sporting a robot claw, never seen in the show. Oddly, in the late 70s, Kmart sold a low-cost 11.5-inch fashion doll line with names like Mandy, Princess, or Bonnie D. These sometimes were dressed in leftover outfits from other toy lines, liquidated by the actual manufacturers. These dolls were thus sometimes found in clothing from the Fantastic Four or Planet of the Apes, and yes, Logan's Run. Since Mego abandoned the Logan's Run toy line while in production, it is thought the manufacturer sold the leftover outfits to other toy companies to get rid of them. A link to pictures of all these figures is in the show notes. What critical reaction was there to the Logan's Run series? Buck Biggers of Gannett News said, Logan's Run has more holes than a slice of Swiss cheese. There are so many questions, so much that is totally unbelievable, even within a sci-fi framework, that the episodes become laughable. Lee Winfrey of Knight Ritter said, It was a mediocre science fiction series. It's dismaying to see that the story editor for this slow-moving space opera is DC Fontana, who contributed so much to the classic old Star Trek series. She has apparently either lost her touch or, more likely, is being misdirected by Logan's producers Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts. After only a month on the air, Logan's Run is already beginning to show signs of shallow planning and mistaken concepts. Ouch. Still, the series absolutely had its fans. Logan's Run updates were regularly posted in Starlog magazine and when it was canceled, some fans indeed wrote letters to CBS to save it. Yes, there were at least two fan clubs for Logan's Run. The Logan's Run Organization of Fans, which published the Circuit Fanzine, and the United Sandmen, which published the Sentinel Informer and the annual Sandman Sentinel Fanzines. These fanzines posted content about both the film and TV versions of Logan's Run. For a time, you could even see fans hold runs at sci-fi conventions. This was shown in the Wonder Woman episode, Spaced Out. D.C. Fontana recalls such a run that even actor Randy Powell got caught up in. I went to a convention in San Diego with Gregory, Heather, and Randy when the show was still on. The fans were playing the runner game. A designated room in the hotel was Sanctuary, and fans split into two teams. Runners and Sandmen. Randy encountered a runner in the stairwell and shouted, Run, runner! in character. It was great seeing people make a game of our jobs. In the passing decades, though, Logan's Run, the TV series, sort of became forgotten while the Logan's Run film continued to live on in pop culture references. Mentioned, referenced, or spoofed in the aforementioned Wonder Woman, in the film Free Enterprise, South Park, Robot Chicken, The Simpsons, NBC's Community, and at least twice in Family Guy. But back before the series even aired, Logan's run as an overall property would suffer from comparison to something that changed the game for sci-fi entertainment forever. While the Logan's Run series was being produced, but before its fall TV premiere, the world went crazy for Star Wars over the summer of 1977, and pop culture had a new cultural touchstone to which all science fiction would inevitably be compared to, and which even changed the way the movie industry worked. Gregory Harrison. At the time we were shooting, it was pretty high tech. Top of the line in terms of special effects, opticals on film. While we were doing it, we were hearing stories about this other science fiction film called Star Wars, which we didn't know. And it made everything we had done look like the old black and white Buck Rogers serials. It sort of made us obsolete almost immediately. Prior to the release of the movie, we thought we were high-end. Indeed. Even the Logan's Run film ended up looking dated and behind the curve, compared to the much more flashy Star Wars with its ILM-produced special and visual effects. Logan's Run was one of the last of the social commentary sci-fi films of the 70s, as science fiction went in another direction post-1977. The series started running in the UK even before it ended its run in the U.S., And also, it ran in Canada and Australia. As mentioned earlier, TNT Network started running it in the fall of 1990, after Ted Turner acquired the MGM library, and they ran it several times through the mid-90s. In 2012, Warner Home Video released the series to DVD. Originally intended as an on-demand burned DVD-R release, it was decided to produce a standard pressed DVD instead. The series had been shot on 35mm film, and the film elements used came from a variety of sources and are of varying quality. Likewise, the 1976 Logan's Run film is also available on DVD, and had a great Blu-ray release in 2009 with a solid HD transfer that makes the colors pop and lets you see details of the Dallas area locations where it was filmed including the conclusion of the film shot at the Fort Worth Water Gardens. It features a commentary by Michael York and director Michael Anderson, along with costume designer Bill Thomas, making this a must-own for any sci-fi fan, especially at the $6 price they've been listing it for the last year or so. Affiliate links to these releases are in the show notes, and your support of Forgotten TV is appreciated. After After Logan's Logan's Run. Run Following Logan's run, Gregory Harrison and his man perm exploded in popularity as the breakout character Dr. Gonzo Gates in 142 episodes of Trapper John, M.D. Later, he had recurring roles on Falcon Crest and Sisters, and was a lead actor on the short-lived shows The Family Man, New York News, and Safe Harbor, as well as a number of TV movies over the years. Other than the occasional TV appearance, these days, he chills at his Oregon home with his wife, actress Randy Oaks, and his cat Doobie. You can chat him up at the real Gregory H on Twitter. Heather Menzies was in the 1979 Captain America TV movie, appeared on the Love Boat, Vegas, and T.J. Hooker, as well as the films Piranha and Endangered Species. After her husband Robert Urich, died in 2002. She established the Robert Urich Foundation to raise funds for cancer research. Sadly, Heather was diagnosed with brain cancer and died in 2017 at age 68. Donald Moffat's initial fear of being typecast as an android Mr. Spock went unfounded as he went on to make memorable appearances in 1982's The Thing, 1983's The Right Stuff, and 1994's Clear and Present Danger. On television, he was on a number of miniseries and TV movies like The Born Identity and Tales of the City. In December 2018, Donald Moffat died at age 87. Randy Powell had a recurring role on Dallas after Logan's run and guest starred on The Amazing Spider-Man, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, Father Murphy, and T.J. Hooker. In 2005, he returned to his hometown of Mason City, Iowa to help the Mason City Community Theater to spearhead the conversion of a sporting goods store to their new facility. These days, he quietly lives out of the public eye with his wife in the L.A. area. George Clayton Johnson, who, before Logan, had written for Star Trek and The Twilight Zone and since had some success with remakes and sequels of his Ocean's Eleven story, died in 2015 at age 86. His personal sequel story, Jessica's Run, a new sequel for the Logan's Run universe, was said to be in development at the time of his death. William F. Nolan is currently 90 and has published three additional Logan novels, with a fourth story still unpublished. Will Logan's run ever make a return? Since the late 90s, a film remake has been in development in one way or another. Like the original film, which took years to bring to the screen, the remake has languished in development hell since then. The most recent update was in March 2018, when Hunger Games screenwriter Peter Craig was reportedly tapped by Warner Bros. to write the film. Joining X-Men director Simon Kinberg, that's been attached to the project since 2015. The protagonists on the run format did seem unnatural for the show. I mean, it was right there in the title. However, our lead characters never came to the realization that the Logan of the film did. That there is no sanctuary. They continued to pass up the opportunity to settle at one outpost after another in search of the unknown Sanctuary, which, of course, was required by the series' formula. A formula which is inherently limiting, requiring them to either keep running forever or find Sanctuary, at which point the series would likely conclude. Of course, this same limitation was the case for every other incarnation of this concept. Planet of the Apes, The Incredible Hulk... The Fantastic Journey, The Immortal, The Phoenix, even modern series like The Walking Dead, all suffer from this issue in one way or another. Like every other show from this era, with this type of characters-on-the-run format, Logan and Jessica never engage in any kind of survival behavior. They never collect or store food. They never keep any additional weapons when given the opportunity. Returning to the status quo by the end of each episode. Of course, this was so viewers could pick up and watch any episode in the non-serialized format used by TV networks at the time. Still, their clothing is never torn, and usually it isn't even dirty. The practical issues of having to find food, bathe, and wash clothes, not to mention find a hairstylist in the case of Jessica, just aren't dealt with. Shows of this era romanticized the walking the earth trope, and the real-world difficulties one would have aren't typically considered in any realistic way. Still, there is something oddly comforting about this kind of escapist television, where you can just pick up and watch any episode without having to know complicated story arcs and plot lines. There is a reason procedural shows are so popular with people of a certain age. They present a digestible story with a satisfying conclusion, instead of having to start at the beginning of a show and watch episodes sequentially. Will the old style of non-serialized episodic television ever make a return? Who knows, but it's a lot of fun to revisit these old shows on DVD or on any of the now numerous retro TV networks that have popped up. So even though some of them are no longer with us, Logan, Jessica, and Rim can continue to live on in our imaginations, pursuing their ongoing quest for the legendary Sanctuary. Next time on Forgotten TV. It's time to revisit Gene Roddenberry's 1970s Pax Trilogy with Genesis 2. Strange New World, and Planet Earth. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with Warner Brothers, MGM, CBS, Gough Robert Steiner Productions, ITC Entertainment, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of the audio clips possible Warner Brothers, Great Hall 75, Jerry Goldsmith, Topic, Soundtrack Studio, Jan Schmelter, Top 10 Cats. Sources of quotes and background information are from the book, Science Fiction Television Series 1959 through 1989, Back Issues of Starlog Magazine, The Virtual Vicky, Logan's Run Fansite, and John Kenneth Muir's Reflections on Cult Movies and Classic TV. And a special thanks to Richard Kay for providing the DVD for this episode. Don't forget you can visit the Forgotten TV Amazon wish list and order the DVD set of a TV series or TV movie you want to see covered on Forgotten TV. Remember to support Forgotten TV at PayPal.me/slash Forgotten TV. All content and links are found at Forgotten.tv. I am your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV.